2: I'm series co-host Dave Anderson, and today I'm speaking with Jefferson Cowie, the James G. Stallman Professor of History at Vanderbilt University. He's the author of Capital Moves, RCA's 70-year quest for cheap labor, Staying Alive, the 70s and the Last Days of the Working Class, The Great Exception, The New Deal and the Limits of American Politics, and most recently, Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power published by Basic Books. Hi, Jeff, and welcome to the Working History Podcast. Hey, Dave, it's great to be here. Let's dive right in and and talk about the book. Your book explores the multiple meanings and uses of freedom, expressed often as a form of racialized anti-statism that kept the federal powers at bay or more bluntly, white resistance to federal power. And you illustrate this theme through the history of one southeastern Alabama county from the 1830s to the 1960s, from Andrew Jackson's Indian removal policy up to Reconstruction, the Jim Crow era, the New Deal, the Civil Rights Movement, and George Wallace's presidential campaigns. So <laughs> it's a big book with a large scope. What's the book's origin story? Could you tell us how you came up with this idea and, and why Barber County?
1: Oh, right. Yeah, so that that's a great question. There's two prongs to that. Why the theme and why the place? <clears throat> the theme I've been thinking about for a long time, uh, especially from my experience in labor history, is so much of labor history pivots on the state, and yet Federal power is always, we're always suspicious of federal power, workers are suspicious of federal power. There's an entire American tradition of fear and loathing um, of, uh, of federal power. And so I, that had always been spinning around in my head. And, and, then I, and then I began to sort of notice invocations of the word freedom in ways that basically scared me, you know, uh, even though I, I regard freedom as, you know, an important value. Um, and, and aspects of freedom are still central to, to who I think I am. But, um, but you know, you, you, see it used all over the place in ways that are just kind of horrifying. And so that had been kicking around my head and I was trying to figure out how I might write something about this. And I began to think if I really want to be, if I really want to write this, I need a place, I got to find a place. And this is all in the back of my head. I really wasn't, um, working on anything in particular, I just wrapped up the Great Exception literally months before. The real story, though, is that it was, I was teaching at Cornell then. It was literally 20 below zero. And my kids, my poor little shivering children came up to me and said, where are we going for spring break? And I said, I I hadn't planned any any trips for spring break. And um, I said, so you guys plan a trip, make it cheap, and we'll go. So they Planned a trip to the Gulf Coast, and we drove down to the Gulf Coast from Ithaca. We we got off the main road and drove through Uvalde, which is the biggest town in Uf- in Barber County. And I just entered that town. I was like, it's it, it, it's sort of a you know stage is this historic town with fancy mansions and beautiful trees arcing over two lane boulevards, and it's all rich with history. But you could tell, like as soon as you crossed. The main boulevard—it all kind of dissolves into kind of, you know, mom and pop shops that are barely keeping it together, and um, and but my, I was just kind of tingly. I was like, "This place is interesting. Um, there's something underneath the surface here." And I turned to my wife and I said, "What well, you know? What's going on here?" And uh, I said, Go- "Google the name of this town." She says, "Well, I don't know anything about it, but they had their first integrated prom in 1991," and I was like. All right, there's a story here. And so uh, it was kind of a reporter's impulse, I guess, as much as an historian's impulse. I went back, started doing research on it at, at the Library of Cornell. And uh, I started, as any good historian would, at the beginning of the story with Indian removal. And it wasn't it, it was until months and months later that I realized George Wallace was from the county. Yeah. And then when I found George Wallace, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is fate, right? Because he was from a different town in the other corner of the county.
2: All right. So, so you you begin the book with Wallace and his uh, inaugural address on January fourteenth, nineteen sixty-three, which is most well known for the infamous phrase "segregation now, segregation today, and segregation forever." But what have we missed about this speech? So Wallace is from this kind of obscure, gritty little
1: town in the corner of the county, and uh, uh, the way he rises to power is incredible but when he makes that speech he has already realized his formula and his formula is maybe segregation but really the core of his message he's not he's only going to get so far on segregation because he has a national agenda right so if you really look at that speech what you see it's, it's it's about freedom from federal power and so he mentions segregation one other time outside of that quote that famous quote but he mentions freedom or liberty uh, about two dozen times that's the core of the speech mm-hmm. and he's not just making a speech to the state of alabama but he's making a, a speech to the nation at that point that he, he 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 sees freedom from federal power as not just a southern thing but a national thing and he's essentially launching his presidential campaign um that very cold january day and um and he's you know just so uh has so much ambition just raw political ambition and cunning. But if, if you think about it, he's right. Like he's only gonna get so far on, on the race question, which he's most famous for. But if you make your argument against the federal government, you're gonna get a much bigger, cast a bigger net. You're gonna get the anti-tax people, you're gonna get the anti-regulation people. Who doesn't hate the federal government? Everybody's gotta beef against the federal government, right? It's a great strategy. And Wallace was also a study, a student of barber county history he really read a lot of local history and he knew that the federal government was the enemy going all the way back to the beginning of southeastern the white history of southeastern
2: alabama one of the things that sticks out in the book as you say the theme that wallace has developed there is freedom and freedom from what he sees as federal tyranny but but in the book you you take this term and concept of freedom and and express the positive aspects of it. But you also remind us that there's another definition of freedom, and that's the freedom to dominate others. Where, where does this concept come from?
1: The first thing I did was uh, plow through Orlando Patterson's history of freedom in, in the West. And um, you know, and he goes all the way back to ancient societies, uh, classical societies, Athens in particular, and and looks at the derivation of freedom and he basically says freedom is rooted in slavery right you can only understand the idea of freedom in the western framework as not slave or so that's one version not to be a slave but the other is the capacity to enslave right and that's that sort of opened up my mind on this whole question and he says freedom is a is kind of a, a chord of three notes. There's civil liberty type freedom, bill of rights, negative freedom. And then there's the freedom to create a political community, to participate in the building of your political community. And then there's the freedom to dominate others or to have sovereignty over others and in when you take that idea and you stick it into a settler colonial and chattel slavery framework that you have in the american south that suddenly metastasizes and gets you know a lot more virulent a lot more powerful that freedom to dominate. And so you see it in the dominating of land and, and dominating the people who used to have the land, dominating of slaves, dominating of sharecroppers, whatever the case. And that can only happen as long as you can keep the federal government firmly at bay.
2: Well, and that's what I want to return to in, in this question or, or or mentioned here, is that in your introduction and throughout the book, you mentioned that the protagonist of this book uh, an unlikely and tragically flawed protagonist, <laughs> is the federal government. What What do you mean by that?
1: Right. I think I call him our uh, weak-kneed, clay-footed hero or something <laughs> like that in the book. Um, yeah, so I'm arguing against the long tradition of of state and local rights because that is where these forms of domination, freedomist domination, happen. Now, the federal government is this sort of weak-kneed hero in the sense that It comes in occasionally and tries to do the right thing almost every time in a deeply flawed, half assed way. And in fact, almost to the point of just enough to whip up white fears, white hysteria over federal tyranny and not actually get the job done of protecting the people that they were allegedly there to protect in the first place, whether it's Creek Indians or or African Americans or whatever. And 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 so it's a it's a very, very problematic and intricate story of how the federal government works in this local. That's why the local part of this is so important mm-hmm. is like working out the machinations on the on the county level. Um, and yeah, they kind of stirred the pot enough to make everything worse in some ways. But the potential energy there uh, is is the only possibility I see the potential energy of the federal government enacting these laws and controlling and, and restraining white freedom is, is the only possible solution to the problems I lay out in the book.
2: What one concept you point out in the book, and I think it comes from Madison, is this notion of the compound republic. And you return to it at various parts of the book. Could, could you explain that concept to us?
1: Yeah. So, you know, one of the great questions Madison had was how to, you know, how are we going to govern this big, huge, sprawling country? right uh previous democracies had been city-states uh how is this going to work and so this idea of the compound republic that this is going to be a local state and federal power working in this you know orchestrated dynamic that'll have a sort of creative tension to it um and uh, we'll have these multi levels of power um was his solution and you know sometimes it works and sometimes it ends in civil war what i look at i mean the, the key parts of the story which i more or less tell, tell in four parts is really where that compound republic is at war with itself where it's where where the clashes over authority are happening and it's at those it's at those friction points that uh the idea of freedom is really sort of comes to the fore where local whites demand their freedom from federal authority, demand to be able to do whatever they want with local lands, local peoples, local labor rights, local whatever it is that is kind of um, up against this kind of constant threat, this constant fear of, of sort of federal bayonets that are always kind of mythologically poised right over the hillside that are going to come in and take away white people's freedom to dominate others.
2: In book one, or the first section uh, the book abounds with ironies <laughs> to say the least and for example we usually think of andrew jackson as leading the indian removal policy in the deep south but in the case of the creeks that you studied in the 1830 he's actually protecting their land from white intruders how did this happen
1: let's be clear that uh, so what happens in in the mid in the early mid 1830s happens after Jackson's campaigns, which essentially turn the better part of several states over to white people, steals it from Creek, Choctaw, Cherokee and other people. But what we have by the time this book opens is this nine county region on the um, western bank of the Chattahoochee River. The Chattahoochee Divides, Alabama and Georgia. And by treaty, the Treaty of Cusetta, they the creek people have this land it's theirs and for five years the 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 treaty says they will there won't be any white intruders in this land and that they will be sort of protected And in the meantime the land will be kind of privatized moved from a, a tribal communal base and privatized and given to the hands of individual creeks so the Creeks there, they're they're like, okay, you know, we're beleaguered, defeated people. We'll take this, um, and we'll take five years of protection, and we'll take uh, this privatization scheme, and try and allow our culture to, and customs to survive. Well, uh, the unwashed democratic masses of America uh, don't necess- they see this as the firing, uh, starting gun for uh, a land grab. Instead, they're like, oh, this. Treaty's been signed. Let's go, and so they swarm into that nine county area, and Barber County is the southernmost county in that uh, region. Actually, so Jackson gets angry at this and basically sends federal marshals in to kick white people out of the Creek Nation, and it's called the Creek Nation by the federal government. And and so you have this extraordinary moment where these white people who are you know many newly enfranchised. Feeling their democratic power, seizing land as promised by Jefferson, as promised by Jackson. This is the American vision. I'm going to go get mine. You have their hero, Old Hickory, basically saying, nope. And so the first act that actually happens in this town, barely a white, it's like a tiny white settlement. And uh, the federal marshals come in, uh, set fire to this warehouse they're building kick everybody out and drive everybody out of the county it's completely against the main story of of andrew jackson and in fact people when i was writing earlier drafts would just completely read the opposite story of what i wrote because it it, it didn't compute so it was a it was sort of you know cognit- cognitively difficult even for my readers to to understand that so i had to write very very clearly carefully because people were so ready to prime to see jackson as a villain and he is the villain believe me he's not not a nice man and ultimately you know the part of it is just people were going against jackson's will um and jackson was a bit of an egomaniac in that regard so you know it wasn't just principles i don't think Mm -hmm. um but what we see is this town born hating the federal government right Mm -hmm. and they turn against jackson because jackson is trying to enforce treaty Rights that support Creek people mm-hmm. um, it's a great irony, as you say
2: you know, one of the um key themes here about this um white's defense of freedom is that they're victims of the federal government, and for that um you need martyrs and and in this first section, you establish this with a character named Hardeman Owens. Could you tell us a little bit about him?
1: Hardeman Owens is an amazing story um he's this kind of rascal figure, unsavory guy who uh, was one of the first intruders, and they were called intruders, who come into the Creek Nation and take over land. And uh, he's belligerent kind of chip on his shoulder sort of felon, he's a grave robber, and he was just kind of a nasty guy. But uh, in a confrontation with federal authorities, a series of confrontations, including him trying to blow them up with a keg of gunpowder, Federal marshals, uh, federal soldiers, shoot him and kill him in a completely justified killing, as far as all the evidence suggests. But what you have out of Harman Owens is this amazing uh, martyrdom, where he suddenly becomes uh, the first you know, fighter to fall in the long struggle against federal power. And he becomes this galvanizing figure. And people are talking about marshalling troops against the federal government. And, you know, there's, you know, war plans are beginning to be drawn up, and the governor gets involved. And it's, it's, it's very dramatic. And sort of in this, kind of maudlin victimization way, like uh, uh, combined with a certain heroics that he resisted federal power. And so he's the guy that sort of provides the moment for the intruders to to uh, identify themselves with a single figure.
2: Okay, so the, the white intruders now can move in, they have a justification, and you would assume that this land that they steal basically from the um, creek indian that it would become these small landowners and they get their family farms but that's not really what happens at the end of this story who actually gets the land right that's that's the
1: (laughs) the ultimate irony of this section i suppose is that uh yeah these speculators come in and sort of win the game they uh essentially they are the ones who win because the the it begins as kind of a Uh, the yeoman farmer myth and ends with large-scale capitalism and some of the most valuable uh, land in the world at that point in the Black Belt.
2: (laughs) All right, as you say, they uh, turn this land over in a a very familiar tale to cotton monoculture. They become, you know, well produces a great amount of wealth and then, but ultimately um, leads to an attempt to secede from the United States in the civil war which the confederacy is defeated and in the in book 2 in the second section you take a look at a familiar topic um of reconstruction but with your the themes you're using what happened on election day November 3rd 1874 in barber county and what was the white line right so yeah the civil war you know Real quick
1: on it, you know, the thing that shocked me about this—the the, the, the you follow Regency or these secessionists in 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 the area—and they were real, real fire eater types. The the thing I, before I talk about eighteen seventy four, I just want to drive home: it was twenty years since they won the land before they're like ready to secede. It's amazing. It's it's a generation, a little more than a generation, but not much, mm-hmm. and. It's all draped in glory and history and tradition and all this stuff, but it it's the bat of an eye, historically speaking. Mm-hmm. So anyway, these guys are going to defend what they have at all costs. They've already lost the war, but they still need to win uh, control over local politics. By 1874, Reconstruction was working pretty well in Barber County. Uh, there'd been local black officials elected. Uh, they had a black congressman going to Washington. They had uh, state representatives. And the white locals have been trying to push against this in a variety of ways, politically, and there'd been some terror and other stuff. And But finally, they, they gave up on all possible means, fair and foul, and basically decided they were gonna seize this. Using kind of the logic of the Colfax Massacre, and draw what was called the white line. Um, and that is that they were going to basically violently seize control of power. And two events happened in Barber County, one in the main town of Eufaula, where at, uh, midday when all the black voters had marched in from the rural areas and lined up to vote, they, in an orchestrated manner, pulled out, white people pulled out weapons from all corners of town and just started opening fire on on the black voters. And this is the kind of thing that we'd never know anything about. Or we just have the white story, except there was a federal investigation by uh, the Republican Party, well, it's bipartisan, but and um, but run by the Republicans. But so we have detailed evidence about what happened because of that. Um, and then there was another shooting and and pole place burning up in the northern end of the county, uh, where they they burned a, a shot, uh, the son of uh, Scalawag and Judge and. Um, and burn the votes and and this turned the tide completely on and all, and for 100 years almost for 90 years on uh voting in Barber county after that people were afraid to vote republican activists black uh, republicans were driven out of town um uh and uh anybody who dared to identify anybody or cross that line ended up going to jail and going being leased into the mines
2: So during Reconstruction, or at least the early years, as you point out, the Black Republicans in in Barber County and the white scalawags, as they were called by their enemies, did achieve more than just a semblance of democracy. How how did this happen exactly?
1: It's really at the uh, end of those federal bayonets. Reconstruction worked because there was an aggressive federal intervention in this local place promoting democratic norms and institutions. Right. Imperfectly, of course, there's corruption. Yes, uh, as there always is in politics. But it was a functioning democracy and it was functioning because there are rules and oversight and and power, federal power. And so when those whites seize control back, the great irony is they are destroying democratic norms in the name of their own personal freedom and their own freedom to dominate others. they use that, those terms. I'm not imposing this. This is, these are the fighting terms under which they are struggling. Some people want to say this is just rhetoric, but I actually believe that it is a fundamental belief in what the nature of freedom is. It's not just political cover.
2: So moving on to book three of uh, the Jim Crow era section of the book, which takes it really from post reconstruction years through the end of the 19th century and and up to World War II, to the dawn of the modern civil rights era. And this is the section of the book where you specifically address labor on at least two occasions. And you have a chapter on convict labor in this uh, area of Alabama. And my assumption is that this flourished because uh, the federal government had receded here. And yet you show. In the book, that it did become an issue for the gov- federal government. How did that happen exactly?
1: Yeah. So um, yeah, I, I call this section the federal government in repose. That this is the era in which, certainly compared to Reconstruction and certainly compared to the New Deal, where it ends, it is in repose. It is it is pulling back. The use of convict labor, which is you know well documented in a variety of our colleagues' work, comes to the forefront for um, the federal government. In a funny way, and in a way that I think you know, this sort of compromised, uh, pragmatic sort of politics that flies in the face of the sort of politics of purity we often see uh, in in progressive politics today. I mean, this, you know, Booker T. Washington is close to uh, or has connections to Theodore Roosevelt, and Booker T. Washington sees a sort of moderate segregationist who believes kind of still believes in democracy and he says, Hey, uh Theodore Roosevelt, you should assign, you should you should uh choose this guy uh for the federal bench. And um, you know, so he's it's like there's no there is no good character in this story. But he begins to sort of uh hear these cases against convict leasing and there are federal investigations of convict leasing uh by the turn of the century. And um but Again, there's a sort of recurring character in different forms throughout the book that are sort of these milquetoast people who have the right idea but can't quite deliver. And uh, that's what we see in those federal cases. And it's really not until a couple decades later in the 20th century that the institution begins to die.
2: Yeah, and the descriptions you have of convict labor are are some of the most gruesome conditions they worked in. They were working them to their death in a you know variety of 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 different occupations and making a lot of money for the locals, you know they, what you do show or illustrate is just the sadistic nature of what this system had wrought, especially by those who are are running it and reaping the benefits of it, and then defending it in court right. as as a Uh, You know, when there's any attempt at reform by these local judges who are federal judges, that they're defending it in the name of freedom.
0: slash NBN 50 to get 50% off. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just
1: like like a lot, all sorts of exploitation, uh, Mm -hmm. of workers of, you know, everything Mm -hmm. is, is dependent on the names of freedom. I do want to correct or not correct, but sort of explain one thing to listeners, which is, um, that there are no mines in Barber County, uh, that yeah, that the mines are up in Birmingham, a long way away from, um, right. Barbara County. But the Kingpin in the convict leasing system, this guy, talk about sadistic, he used that word, J. W. Comer. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is one of, from one of the biggest planting families in Barbara County. He is he is the guy who kind of orchestrates and runs the convict leasing systems, run, has people running around all the county jails and, and buying buying up convicts to send to the mines. And as you say, the most horrific and at times just sort of gratuitously sadistic setting. Mm-hmm. This is a this is an opportunity or this is a setting where somebody like Comer, who is just has something wrong with him, mm-hmm. can let his freedom fly right in the form of just brutalizing other human beings. Um, and uh, and the whole Comer family that comes from Barber County plays sort of different aspects of the story of of uh, freedom in, in in Alabama.
2: Well, speaking of the Comer family, we we find another one of them several decades later, in which you you know return to a familiar era for labor historians and labor historians in the South, and that's uh, during the 1930s, the NRA period, and and when the New Deal comes to the South, and so we have Donald Comer who is a, uh, is he the son or the uh, Uh, nephew? nephew. Yeah, the nephew. And he um, is a textile magnate, runs a series of mills, including one in Eufaula, if that's correct. that's right You know, it's an interesting case
1: because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, paternalism is a question that that defines many aspects of our field of labor history. And, um, uh, you know, and he bought up Well, his dad, actually, his dad gave it all to him, uh, B.B. Comer, who's the governor. He took this grimy, disgusting, horrible, disease-filled mill, like the worst of, you know, the dark satanic mills, and turned it into kind of a nice place. I really sort of struggled with this question of what did this mean? He, you know, gave everybody nice uniforms and put in bathrooms instead of one outhouse and fresh drinking water and clean air and uh, ran on electricity and, instead of coal and, uh, you know, spiffed it all up. And everybody loved Mr. Donald. He, they absolutely loved this guy. He, and he embraced the early New Deal. He embraced mm-hmm. the first New Deal uh, uh, began, and was on the textile board and um, uh, during the National Industrial Recovery Act and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, what do you do with that? Here's, here's a person who kind of used his freedom – from the federal power in a fairly effective way, a fairly more than benign, a fairly generous way, more generous than he had to be. He was sort of a Christian gospel kind of, or or, or social gospel, excuse me, figure. But then when the second New Deal comes along, and it's actually about empowering workers, and it's actually about providing unionization rights and collective bargaining and stuff that doesn't necessarily empower him, but empower his workers to say what they want rather than him telling them what he wants uh he he fights off unionization elsewhere and you in his other plants and you follow they're basically by his side all the way,
2: yeah, you call this system uh, enlightened paternalism, and this uh and that may have been the term they used at the time i I don't know, but um you know that has been an issue when especially studying uh the textile industry in this time. And, you know, where some historians are just flat out critics of it and uh, see it as a mere tool for domination, particularly of the poor whites who were sharecroppers and tenant farmers and did move into industry and, and become a working class. And then there's another side of this coin where paternalism is seen as a method that workers themselves were able to manipulate and carve out some spaces of, of cooperation, of making their workplace better. But but you offer, I think, a, a, a rather a little twist on both those that I don't think you necessarily deny that was the case, but you, you use your theme to reinterpret or explain the way you see how paternalism works. Could could you expand on that a bit? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Uh- What made writing about this and coming up with the argument about this a little more tricky was this was kind of a golden version of paternalism. This wasn't just, you know, hey, do you want a ham at Christmas uh, kind of thing? This was, you know, they had a summer camp on the coast and they had bands. They had a band and a baseball team and decent pay. And and it would be condescending to say anything besides that the workers really like this guy. And I think it's not our job to say otherwise. But what it did do, and I think this is what you're driving at, is it kept the federal government out of regulating industrial work. While Mr. Donald, Donald Comer, used that freedom fairly effectively, uh, fairly generously perhaps, the long impact is essentially, and that is the key to Southern history in a lot of ways, is to keep federal... Government out of their affairs, and uh, and that got really aggressive. I mean, he got blatant about it with the Second New Deal, and on into the uh, 1940s and 1950s, especially the FEPC. And and so what you see is sort of that. Also, his his very nice example also becomes cover for a whole lot of other really bad behavior um, that allows the simultaneously freedom from federal authority allows you to run your plan as you want. Now that could be. Run well, like Donald Comer's plants, or run really in bad ways, as many many other places were. Mm-hmm.
2: So when we move to book four, I mean, one thing you've shown here is Barber County is kind of the uh, farm system or the breeding ground for Alabama white politicians, and not just a series of government uh, governors, but probably the most famous to come out of this era or this area is George Wallace. You know, the first question I ask, how was he a product of Barber County and what were his particular strengths as a politician?
1: His most cherished memory as a child is vote counting. You know, uh, uh, <laughs> when his, his grandfather ran for, camera. now it eludes me what it was, judge or something, commissioner or something. And they're up all night counting the votes and he's just looking at the chalkboard and it's just the most exciting thing he's ever seen. And he begins already in this little town of Clall pumping fists at an early age and talking to people and and schmoozing and I uh, mean at the time the other side of it of course is is that Wallace was a was a fairly reputable boxer right so he's a fighter he's scrappy and uh, you put those two together and you have quite a character and early on uh, he became uh, an aide legislative aide in uh, in the state legislature. Uh, as a teenager, and he wrote every single member of the state legislature to introduce himself. My name's George Wallace. I'm from Barber County, and stood on that famous star where um, uh, you know where Jefferson Davis was sworn in as president of the Confederacy, and said, I, "I will be governor one day." And so he's got it in his soul. He's got it in his family. He's he has it in the in the is boxing. Um, And he has it in Barber County, right? So Barber County, you know, I make a joke in the the book somewhere that Tuscaloosa has football, Muscle Shoals has music, and Barber County has politics. Half a dozen governors came from Barber County, and it is a political town. And uh, he just ate it up um and uh so he was a he was a political beast um in his heartbeat politics blood pump politics he's just like he's uh it's who he was and he begins kind of as a vaguely progressive i'm gonna pave the roads and create trade schools and i'm gonna be kind of you know not i'm not gonna play the race card uh i'm gonna be um moderate modest on moderate on race um, but he worked his ass off. You know, he didn't have a car. He'd hitchhike all over the county, meeting people, getting rides, whatever it took. And, you know, gets elected and then, and then get, finally gets a judgeship in for the three-county area, including Barber County. And that's when he becomes the fighting judge of, uh, of Alabama.
2: So you say he was a protege of uh, Big Jim Folsom in the book. Uh, what would have passed for a Southern moderate or vaguely liberal again not challenging the color line but then
1: you know once brown versus board drops that then the the game changes like the federal government comes in and says it's it's time to integrate and then new lines are drawn and that kind of space that Folsom and Wallace hold slightly ambiguous moderate on race not gonna we're not gonna have politics revolve around race and we're not just going to race bait that falls by the wayside and there's much less room for moderation at the time.
2: Yeah, and so Wallace uh you know sees which way the wind is blowing as far as um the uh local white politics in the wake of Brown and uh you know we have the famous episode where he decides he won't lose to a segregationist again in rather colorful language. Uh, I was going to say, that was a pretty clean telling of that story. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, so he looks like from all appearances that he's going to be a Norval Faubus or one of these, you know, the last gasp of these overt segregationist governors. But that doesn't happen to Wallace. He's the one of all of them. I mean, I guess you could say Strom Thurmond in some mm-hmm. way as well. But Wallace is the one who emerges you know, with a movement behind him. Thurman kind of folds into the Republican Party as it's changing. Wallace stands out. And why is that?
1: <laughs> I mean, I actually think it's his genius to move towards this this, this idea of freedom. And that, uh, I mean, and he's just good. I mean, he's just plain mm. good, right? But mm. I think he sees, he has that national ambition and he sees that use and mobilization of anti Status sentiments across the country as 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 super powerful, but he he learns something really clever I think in the late six in the late fifties and early sixties, and that is every time he loses on everything he loses everything you know every political fight he loses but every time he does he 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 comes out swinging against the federal government he he just keeps losing forward right if you you know his big standoff is with the federal elections committee in fifty eight and uh where they want the ballots in barber county and he won't give them to him but he ends up giving them to him but then he's able to fight he that's when he wins the moniker the fight and judge because he's he's the resistor against federal power even though he completely lost the fight and so throughout his career he he translates those losses of the the civil rights act somewhat the voting rights act into i'm your man i'm going to keep fighting these guys I'm going to keep fighting this intrusion, and I'm going to I'm going to defend your freedom, uh, and and it's uh that and a lot of hard work and corruption.
2: So Wallace is this, establishes this model or discovers this model that it's not actually posting victories, but always being a moving target or always being a victim in the protection of your supporters' freedom from tyranny, and which which not only can play in the South very well among the white segregationists, but he finds it can be transposed throughout the nation, and I would even add it can be transposed through time up to the present.
1: It's the enduring theme throughout the entire book, all the way going back to, to the intruders' war.
2: I mean, he's never chastened by an apparent loss or defeat and will never admit it. It's
1: You're all thinking. opportunity and uh, until he has a sort of conversion moment um later yeah, on. Yeah. Uh,
2: also in book four, the final section, it's not just the um an analysis of Wallace, but you examine voter registration drives in Barber County and throughout Alabama and the South in general, especially through the SCLC scope campaign and, and SNCC as well, their voter drives along with the heroic efforts, I think the book includes as well, uh, on the part of local female activists here who really carry the ball for the, the, the voter drives in these areas. One unsung hero of this era is the attorney politician, Fred Gray, who we know, if you're familiar with the Montgomery Bus Boycott, was the lead attorney in the federal court cases that actually did in segregation on municipal buses. And his life and career stands in counterpoint to Wallace, the way he presented. Could you tell us a bit about Fred Gray during the period you examine in the book? You know, we know about him in the 50s. What, what happens to him in the 60s and, and, and the story you tell?
1: Yeah, that's a a really interesting comparison with uh, Wallace and Gray. I hadn't really kind of thought of, I mean, they're clearly diametrically opposed sort of characters. Yeah. I mean, Gray is young. He's earnest, hardworking, believes in the law, uh, avoids the flash and the substance. And when he does run for office, not having enough bombast is his whole problem. He needs, he needs uh, gospel singers even to get his word out. Right. And, um, so uh but yeah he just grinds through the courts and just taking on case after case of of disenfranchisement and and the and the schools and the and he's in and out of barber county all the time uh, and voting rights cases uh the desegregation of the schools doesn't happen for it takes uh, the better part of two decades to actually desegregate those schools, and he finally uh, runs for the um, state house in um, Alabama, and he, technically, you know, technically wins in '66, but then there's a runoff and it doesn't work, and then he runs again and they steal from him. And finally, in 1970, he he wins and he's the first one of two people uh, who become the first black representatives elected since. Um, reconstruction like you know he doesn't talk about freedom even though he's practicing the idea of freedom we talk about right he's talking about rules institutions laws boring hard work stuff not just beating your breast about uh freedom
2: yeah and from his perspective and as you write that you know citizenship and true citizenship rights that That gray is devoted to this idea that you need the power to give it what what Wallace and them are seeing as unfair power or tyranny. Gray sees this is a guarantee right. of of yeah. citizenship and of rights It's the which, tension throughout the whole book
1: is yes, what will the federal government guarantee here mm-hmm. and that's what he keeps going to court to find out right mm-hmm. and uh and it's it's and it's a, it's a long. Long battle. Mm-hmm. The point for me that really crystallized everything about this, and this isn't really about Fred Gray directly, but indirectly, and that is after the Voting Rights Act of 65, and the scope organizers are trying to organize voters, get yeah, voters registered, which is a huge thing. And this, you know, one of these classic places that nobody's ever studied before, the vast majority of people weren't in Selma or Montgomery or uh Memphis or wherever right they're just in places nobody's ever thought about with the civil rights movement they had a decent campaign but when the numbers get back to the southern Christian leadership conference in Atlanta on these county level registration drives they can't figure out why some are better than others and Jose Williams is kind of the, the SCLC lieutenant on this and he looks at Barber County he's like they got a decent movement how come their numbers are so low and Wilcox County right nearby has not as good a movement, but their numbers are better. And then finally he puts it all together and realizes federal registrars, the presence of a federal authority in those counties that is the enemy of white people, the enemy of white freedom is the key to solid numbers. So you can have all the activists in the world, but until you get the federal government in there. And that's really what so much of the civil rights movement was about really, it was trying to trigger federal authority to come in to make black people federal not state and local citizens right if you could make a claim on federal citizenship under the voting rights act under the 14th amendment whatever it's going to be that was the win and that's what fred gray totally understood
2: i almost think if you could um summarize this especially the uh position of the those who wanted to maintain segregation, I think the usual view is their argument is the federal government is coming here to interfere with our power to dominate. And your reinterpretation of this is it's coming in to prevent our freedom to dominate. So they're putting it in this glorious terms, you know, deeply rooted in American culture and who's going to, as you ask, I think, rhetorically, who's going to oppose freedom? Right? <laughs> it's it's always a good thing, right? And I think what the book does is really complicate this this concept and shows what that that it isn't an unalloyed concept of human liberation, that it actually can be wielded in a way that makes lives of voters, of workers, and of you know, all people who don't possess power make their lives a lot harder. I I do think this is a bold move to subject that concept to more scrutiny than we have. All right, let's 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 uh, bring this all together here. And I have two points I want to make. First is that in every section of the book, there's a twist or irony. On one hand, Barber County White's anti-statism and quest for freedom applies to all white residents, that they're going to benefit from Freedom's dominion, but it always seems like an elite group ends up ahead at the expense of the poorer and less powerful whites. Do you see freedom's dominion as a form of elite manipulation, or is it something else?
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, very insightful, Dave. Um, the um, in in each case, more or less, you kind of have a coalition around whiteness. Um, that slips pretty quickly into an elite domination of the question of whiteness. During the land grab, uh, obviously the speculators win, but the one that is most profound to me is after the 1901 segregationist constitution, where they essentially, whites agreed to lose the vote themselves and more whites over the course of the ensuing decades lose the vote than blacks basically um and and they give that up they cough that up um and that gives more money to the the planters and the big mules uh the the that is the economic elite of the state of alabama and so yeah um i do agree but it kind of there's a it doesn't necessarily start that way there is a kind of i hesitate to use the word solidarity but uh there's a there's a unity around the question of of whiteness but that Readily evolves into a domination of economic elites. Um, it's a very hierarchical society, very highly mm-hmm. stratified, right? so it's it's not surprising that that that, that happens,
2: yeah, and it's a familiar story even today that you'll see those who are adapting Wallace's populist style for lack of a better term to the present will will use these terms, will base their whole political campaigns on their opposition to federal power and yet as they keep getting re-elected and re-elected you don't see much improvement especially in the poorer areas in the poorer parts of the deep south the the winners are very clearly delineated so it it does serve and and, and i think you're very convincing in the book that they're like you say a unity of interest this isn't false consciousness and yet uh, on the parts of the poorer whites and and the there is wedded to this concept of freedom, but once that is established, the federal government is defeated, loses its nerve, beat back, then that sets the terrain for this this process of now the economic elites can take advantage of this new context,
1: yeah, it's less false consciousness than an eternal false promise, right that if we can just if we can just achieve this, yeah, then the new day dawns, right, and yeah. what happens is. The, those in power essentially remain in power.
2: You close with an emphatic defense of the use of federal power. Where in history, in this history, can we draw any glimmer of such a thing being realized? And and to, and I mention that because today we're seeing, a, particularly among southern workers, um, you know, a nascent uprising for unionization for demands of of better working conditions for for things like health care, for even, you know, respect of individuals, for um, even climate change. You're you're starting to see signs of this uh, coming from workers across class, class racial uh, coalitions. And it seems to me this book does speak to these times for workers in those conditions. Where where is there any glimmer of hope? Or maybe it has to be something new. Right.
1: So, there there a cynical read of this book I think would be the federal government came in just long enough to stir everything up and whip up a sense of white freedom and white you know resistance to federal power. It never delivered the goods it never closed the deal for non white or working white working class people um and I think it's a fairly legitimate argument, but the potential energy i think of federal intervention is kind of the only hope and you i mean i think you see it in the initial phases of the marshals trying to remove white intruders i think you see it in the uh first 10 years of re or eight nine years of reconstruction when black voting is supported i think you see it in attempts to integrate production and regulate uh, under the FEPC and regulate uh the labor market provide unionization during the New Deal, World War II, and you certainly see it during the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act. Um, obviously, we're in the another period of long redemption um, from the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act period. But it's the only tool. It's the only if, if somebody wants to show me another possibility that will provide a lever outside of local circumstances that can provide people the the, the capacity to act up for their act on upon themselves and to have agency over their circumstances that is not federal authority. I'm all ears, but I don't, I don't see it.
2: Well, thank you very much, Jeff, for talking about your book, for agreeing to be one of our first, if not the first guest of the relaunch of working history. And, you know, as I've told you, I think this book is a, just a a great achievement. I think it can be uh, used in coursework. I think it, it can be read by anybody with an interest in history. I think it's a, Retelling of the past, it also speaks to our present. And thank you for being so generous with your time and your comments.
1: Well, I appreciate you being such an astute reader, Dave. Thanks for having me on.
2: Thanks for listening to Working History, a podcast on the New Books Network channel, New Books in the American South. Email us at workinghistorypodcast at gmail.com and find us on Twitter at Working History. Working History is a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Learn more and become a member at www.southernlaborstudies.org. Thanks for listening.
1: Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check.